Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Mi gente, mi gente, mi gente. I'm so excited. I say this every week that I'm so excited, but it's because I have some really rad guests that excite me. So why wouldn't I say that every week? Because all of my guests do excite me. And this week's guest is no exception. I have Marisa Lopez with me. Hi, Marisa. How are you? Hola, I'm good. How are you doing, Jessica? I am so wonderful. I'm about to be better because I'm going to have some wine right now. <laughs> But Marisa is the professor of English and Chicano studies at UCLA. So let me tell you, before I get into the wine, before we get into the chisme, I was super, super excited to have you on because I've been looking for somebody to talk to about Mexican history, about Chicano history. And I literally just started Googling. And it went to your page and it was like all of these things that you guys were doing from the nonprofit side. And then it said to contact us. So I filled out the form. I want to talk to, I have a podcast. I want to talk to somebody about what you guys are doing about Mexican American histories. And then you responded back to me. And that's how it happens. Sometimes you, you want something bad enough, you'll find a way, right? Exactly. Yeah. Asking you shall receive. So before we get into the chisme. I know you're not drinking because you're working. Your professora, professora has her drinks after office hours. Right now, I get to have my drinks anytime I want. So. <laughs> you, I think you have the better job. <laughs> so today, I kept it, you know, within our Mexican American, uh, within our Latin vintners, and I am drinking a Chardonnay by Aldina Vineyards. It's 2019 Chardonnay. Oh, cool. And it's from the Los Carneros area in Sonoma County. And I've actually become friends with these vintners. Monica, Aldina, Al is the father's name. Gina is the mother's name. So they combined it to up for Aldina Vineyards. And they are so awesome. They may have just finished opening their new tasting room. So I can't wait to go up to Sonoma County and try out that, like, check out their new tasting room and everything like that. So I'll say salute to you. You could raise up your water bottle. <laughs> Bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're raising something up. Okay. Uh, salute. Salute. <laughs> I'm not a fan of buttery Chardonnays. So I like them when they're steel aged because they end up being a little bit more citrusy, a little bit more light. And this is what this is. So this makes me happy. <laughs> and it's okay. And it's hot in Southern California today. I know you're in LA. I'm in San Diego, but it is really hot. It's very hot. 
Yes. So let me read your bio because then we'll understand why I'm so excited. (laughs) So Marisa Lopez is a professor of English and Chicano studies at UCLA, researching Chicanx literature from the 19th century to the present with an emphasis on 19th century Mexican California. She's written two books, Chicano Nations uh, by NYU in 2011, and about nationalism and Chicanx literature from the early 1800s to post 9-11. Radical Imminence from NYU in 2019 explores uses of the body and effect in Chicanx cultural production. She recently completed a year-long residency at the Los Angeles Public Library as a Scholars and Society Fellow with the ACLS, where she worked to collaboratively develop a mobile app picturing Mexican America that uses geodata to display images of Mexican California relevant to a user's location. Professor Lopez is a past vice president of the Latino Latina Studies Association and the past chair of the Modern Language Association's prize committee for the best book in Chicano, Chicana, and Latino Latina literacy and cultural studies. She is also past chair of both the MLA's Executive Committee on Chicano Chicana Literature and its Committee on the Literature of People of Color of the U.S. and Canada, and a past director of UCLA's Chicano Studies Research Center, as well as past chair of UCLA's Committee on Diversity and Equal Opportunity. Ooh, that's a mouthful. That was the extended extended version. <laughs> but I look, I didn't trip over anything. Like I read it and I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I need to buy this book. I need to buy this book. <laughs> yes, you should buy the book. It's fantastic. Actually, I'll send you a copy. Oh, thank you. I'm like super excited because I pulled them up because I wanted to kind of get a little more information. But I really want to start off because I feel like this is very interesting. And something that a lot of people don't know is you're Mexican and Jewish. And I don't think many people know that there's actually a pretty significant population of Mexican Jews. I have a friend who he's like his cousin is Jewish and in Mexico City. And I think in Mexico City, it's pretty significant, correct? Yes. Yeah. There is a a significant Jewish population. I mean, across the Americas in Mexico City in particular. And I always say I'm I'm a Mexican Jew, but I'm not like the interesting kind. (laughs) I'm a Mexican (laughs) Jew. Well, so... Okay, what I am is a Mexican Jew because my mom is the child of uh, Eastern European immigrants and she grew up in New York and she married my father, who's a Mexican from Southern Arizona, Northern Mexico. Uh, So then together they made a Mexican Jew. But the interesting kind are the kind that are descendants of the conversos or people who fled, uh, Jews who fled Spain during the Middle Ages, during the purges, or who fled a variety of places or came with uh, the conquest, who came with Cortes and other explorers uh, fleeing the Inquisition and then established these communities of, uh, to varying degrees, kind of hidden Jewry uh, across the Americas, and then which evolved over the centuries into pretty thriving Jewish communities. So there are plenty, and there's a pretty substantial population of Mexican Jewish immigrants, the interesting kind in, in LA. Really? Yeah. And I, you know, we come out of the woodworker. I'm always, I'm meeting Mexican Jews often. I'm like, oh, you're a Mexican Jew too. And then there are converts um, and, you know, or people who married into Judaism and, and converted. So it's like a, an untapped resource or something that an ethnic studies professor could uh, research, you know, these communities. 
but yeah, no, I always find that so interesting. And if people don't know, like I'm not, a, I don't watch the real housewives. I used to a long time ago, but Kyle Richards has been Mauricio. He's Mexican Jewish as well. The interesting kinds. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell me how, like if people look, looked at you weird growing up and how did that formulate, like having that Mexican side and a Jewish side, how did that help you formulate your view growing up? My you, that is such a great question. A really an insightful one. I, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and I was growing up in the eighties, you know, during like, right. I was like a young teen right around the time of Reagan's amnesty program. So it was, I guess it's never a good time for immigrants, but you know, I was in growing up in North Hollywood. So in the Valley, so like a, a pretty significant Mexican and Central American diasporic population there but going to school in these specialized programs that were not particularly diverse and I'm white passing or white presenting as so was always awkward because I used my mom's maiden name, which is Goodman. So my mom who is Jewish and I didn't start using my birth name. The name is on my birth certificate. It's my dad's name. My parents were divorced when I was very young and didn't start using that name until high school. So I always felt like I was, well, now I call it a stealth Latino or going undercover, you know, feeling like I knew that I was one thing, but nobody knew that I was this thing. So it's a, probably a really great topic to get into with the therapist, like the, the lasting <laughs> effects of this. You know, people say remarkably racist things in front of me still and ended when I was a child uh, and growing up just because I look like an Ashkenazi Jew, but then you put me next to my Thea's, you know, my dad's sisters, we all look exactly the same. I'm giving you a meandering answer. I don't know the effects on my psyche, feeling like I was never really seen the way I knew myself to be. But I can say the effects on my research are pretty clear. You know, we always tell our students, all research is me-search, especially when we're mentoring and trying to motivate first generation and students of color to make them feel like they belong in the university and their insights are important. So, you know, this is a kind of standard phrase, all research is me-search. You are valuable and important. Yes. When I think about my books, I used to joke when I was writing my dissertation, I would talk about my dissertation as being about the problem children of Chicano literature, like people who Chicano literature or Chicano literary history did not want to claim because they were problematic in various ways, you know, white identified or they were, you know, older. It's still the 19th century is a difficult topic for Chicano studies writ large to think about how to incorporate um, some of these figures. So I definitely have always been writing about people who were Chicano, who I would consider Chicano, a part of Chicano literary history, whom it was difficult for the broader field to accept. So that's definitely research is me search. People ask me all the time, like, oh, Lopez, is that your married name? I'm like, no, it's my name. <laughs> <laughs> or people are always surprised when they meet me. Well, first to find out my last name is Lopez and to find out what I do. Like, oh, Huh. <laughs> You're a professor of Chicano literature. Why? <laughs> I don't understand. You get yeah. That. But, you know, even like that's my my abuelita when she was alive also would never tell people that I was a Chicano studies professor. She would say that I was an English professor. This is a kind of another another topic, you know, because when she was growing up and even for my dad's generation, Chicano was a bad word. Yeah, actually, that was one of the questions that I had. But let's dive into that now. Sure, let's let's go like, there. <laughs> let's go. Let's go there. Why not? Look, this is the beauty of having this podcast is we can do whatever we want, right? We're not to like, doesn't have to be formulaic. We can jump topic to topic, but they're all important. 
So Chicano kind of came out rising within like the 50s and 60s. Am I correct? I just want to make like it. Please make sure to keep me honest because (laughs) I want to make sure I am correct because this is something that's very, very important to me as well. Okay. But at some point there became a stigma to that word. And I feel Mm -hmm. like people are starting to use that word again. Oh, by the way, look, check out my earrings. I'm wearing my Chicana earrings today. Oh, excellent. And I have my my Chingona nameplate that <laughs> one of my students gave me. I, like, I was like, this is so appropriate. To today. No, it's fantastic. And this is appropriate too. I always have this here in my Zoom backgrounds and, you know, almost nobody that I have professional meetings with knows what it means. So <laughs> we got you. This audience, we got your back. I feel seen. <laughs> So what has the, can you talk about the flow and the meaning of Chicano, Chicana? I don't use the X personally. I usually, when I talk, I usually use the E, the E, because I feel like it flows into language a lot easier. But can you talk about where that started, how it's evolved and how it's continuing to evolve? I can. We we only have uh, an hour and a half, right? <laughs> So let's see the the quick and dirty history. So Chicano is a word that word first uh, comes into circulation after 1848. So it's it's a pretty old word. And the etymology of that is uh, it it emerges as a shortened form of Mexicano. And it's used uh, in the latter part of the 19th century to refer to Mexicans who choose to stay in the territory that Mexico sells or cedes or has stolen from it by the United States after the Mexican-American War. So all this territory of California, Colorado, Utah, parts of Wyoming, Texas. So Mexicans who choose to stay in this territory then become, start being referred to as Chicano. And so that's the, it's like a factual objective word. But then over the course of the 19th century, this is what I write about in my first book, topic for a whole other podcast. Mexican-Americans now are slowly and systematically stripped of wealth, stripped of status, lose their standing, social and political standing. So that kind of increasing proletarianization, like they're made working class over the course of the 19th century, that combined with an influx of uh, different kinds of um, newer immigrants from Mexico in the early part of the 20th century, all that combined means that as we're moving into the 20th century, then Chicano turns into an epithet, turns into a bad word, something used to describe lower class, darker skin, more indigenous looking laborers. So Chicano is a bad, bad word, like I said, um, in the first half of the 20th century until really the uh, El Movimiento, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, when activists start reclaiming it and then reclaiming that word and using that word becomes a mark of an embrace of a certain set of political ideologies. So not just to refer to a person of Mexican descent living in the United States, but to refer to that person who also is embracing their indigenous heritage, who's anti-racist, anti-Anglo. So it becomes a political demarcation and a positive one moving into the latter half of the 20th century. So, and that's, that's Chicano. And then, you know, there's all the other words, Hispanic and Latino and But I think the other part of your question was the X, right? Or where that comes from. The X emerges in the, I guess, like the early 20 teens. And it emerges in online activist discourse from queer communities as a way of refusing the gendered conventions of Spanish, right? So the X becomes a a way to demarcate space for gender nonconforming and non-binary folks. Uh, But then it quickly gets taken up by 
you know, the media and, and everyone looking for, you know, the way to be the least offensive, right? Like, oh, like, this is the word that everyone's using. So I'm going to use this and I'm going to be the most inclusive. And so this is a hot topic, right? Then I actually taught a graduate seminar about this a couple of years ago on, you know, Latinx genealogies, right? Like, let's think about the X and Latinx and what does it mean to use it? Because on the one hand, it's great to be inclusive, and to find a way to work around the gender conventions of Spanish. On the other hand, if the X emerges to create space for, to make visible gender non-conforming and non-binary people, then what does it mean if we're just using it to refer to everyone? Is that just like another form of erasure? And then the, so that's a question. And then the other question around the X is, it's hard to say, it's hard to say in Spanish, like what is it, Latinx, and that doesn't <laughs> sound good, and Latinx is like the so people don't like it. There's argument about how it it's butchering the Spanish language and making the Spanish language ugly, and to use it and its prevalence is just another sign of US colonialism, right? Because then it's the conventions of English being mapped onto Spanish in, in ways that don't totally fit. And the, I, mean, I could go on, like the response to that is, well, Spanish itself is a colonial language, it's a colonial imposition upon indigenous populations. So who cares if we're imposing on Spanish? That's fine. And then there's the, the you hear a lot like, oh, well, only 3% of Latinos refer to themselves as Latinx. And so we shouldn't use it. But I mean, I just feel like that's that's kind of a non-starter of an argument. Like, so, so what? I mean, the, the people who are using it, who are referring to themselves as using the X, it's meaningful to them. And then the A, the, as you, you use it, the E or the Latine, that's like the, the Spanish language, like more melodic version of the X and all the same questions apply right, around what does it mean to use it? And are we just erasing or, you know, finding another way to make gender non-conforming people invisible? And I don't know the answer to, I don't have a, an opinion. I use it. <laughs> just like they, them, you refer to people how they would like to be referred to. And that's kind of how I see it. I've spoken with a lot of Latinos and the people that I've spoken with prefer the E over the X, because first of all, a lot of times when you say it, people don't even realize you're saying it because it just flows so integrally with the language. And I think that's such a big thing for so many people is language. Like, Say using the X. And I think also from what I understand, and please tell, again, correct me, the X wasn't something that came from the Latin American culture. It came from Caucasian, like in the university level. I feel like a lot of people have heard that's what I've heard. Is that correct? Or did it start with the non-conforming and then get kind of hijacked yeah. by the educational elite, quote unquote, elites is what Yes, number two, the word itself starts appearing in Twitterverse in conversations amongst activists. So it's that was a grassroots term that gender nonconforming Latine, <laughs> Latinx <laughs> people were uh, using to to create space for themselves or to to make themselves visible. And it's you know I don't know that I would say necessarily that it's been co opted by the the academic elite. There's you know a lot of debate and people don't like it. And our Chicano Studies department just had went through a long process of changing its name to no, it's uh, Chicano and Central American studies, but there's, there's no X there. <laughs> Nobody's using the X, but I think it was taken up by mainstream media is where then it started circulating most. Got it. Got it. How did you start diving? Because you said you grew up like 
your parents weren't together. You grew up, I'm assuming. And again, please keep anytime I say something, if it's incorrect, I don't care. I don't mind if I'm wrong. That's why we're here, right? (laughs) To learn. I'm assuming you mostly identified with your Jewish side being raised by your mom. So at what point, or have you always been very into your Mexican American side? And, And how did you start diving into the history, particularly how it relates to California? Another great question. So, you know, my mom's family is Jewish, but my mom always says, oh, if there were a God, then my life wouldn't be so terrible. So she says she's an atheist. But then I always say, you know, that's actually a pretty Jewish thing to say. It's like a character in a Woody Allen movie would say that. So my parents separated when I was very young and I didn't have a lot of contact with my dad, but I did have contact with my dad's family. I didn't really have a relationship with my dad until I was a young teenager. And really like that's around the time when most people start identifying themselves, right? Thinking about, well, who am I? I I can't remember having real thoughts as a child, except knowing, having a very clear understanding. I remember that moving through the world with my mom, like being in public spaces with my mom and and my mom's family was really different than moving through the world with my dad's family. Really different. So while I am certainly white presenting, I've I've had this very odd experience of being kind of like a double agent, you know, experiencing what it's like to be marked without being actually marked myself, but which is also a really awkward and rich terrain to to dig into. But the journey of identifying with my Mexican side, I think it was a struggle all through college, really feeling like, okay, I am connected to this heritage, but I felt like it had been taken away from me through forces beyond my control. Like I hadn't been able to fully live this life. And I had always felt that. And so by the time I got to college, I was really looking for ways to connect. And I think that this is true for most young people. I mean, I work with young people all the time and they're just looking to become more fully themselves and learn about themselves and learn all these things. And it was not, I would say it was not easy. You know, I really tried to be a mechista and I was down, down with the program and the the program was, you know, <laughs> okay with me being down with it, but you know, let's kind of side eye, like, oh, okay. Yeah, we, we could have a whole podcast about Mecha. <laughs> uh, but you know, I was active uh, in college, active enough. But then I was an English major, and I was a very conflicted English major because I love books and I love Shakespeare, and these were the things that I wanted to study. I was going to be a Shakespearean, uh, or you know, run a theater company, Shakespeare theater company, and I used to to feel very anxious about that or very anxious, maybe not the right word, but it's just like, ah, what am I doing? Like, did my grandpa walk from Guanajuato to Mexico city to you know, get a Bracero contract? This is how my dad's family came to the States. Like, did he do that so that I could like sit around and read Macbeth? And so I would feel, I don't know, self-conscious about that or guilty. And then I might, you know, other voice inside my head would be like, yes, absolutely. That's exactly why he did that. <laughs> right. Uh, But when I initially went to graduate school and decided, okay, this is what I want to do because everybody has their talents and I feel like I should be a labor organizer, but I wouldn't be very good at that. Uh, So I'm going to go to grad school and be an English professor. I was going to be a Shakespearean and I was really interested in contemporary productions of Shakespeare and cross-racial casting, like cross-racial and cross-gender casting. So I had this kind of ethnic and gender studies take 
But when I got to graduate school, I had just a set of realizations all at once. And I was in my early 20s, mid 20s. And I started my PhD at the University of Wisconsin, which is a wonderful place to study Shakespeare, a wonderful place in a lot of ways. Uh, it's also the whitest place I had ever I was about been. to say, not a wonderful place for diversity, though. Yeah, I mean, actually, and that, but Wisconsin was where I like finally found my my Mecha home. I mean, Mecha saved me. It was like literally the whitest place. Like it snows. I felt like it was snowing all the time. So it was just white, but also not particularly diverse. And also really the first place I had been where I was roundly red as white all the time because I... I really felt not seen there. And I had this diversity fellowship, right? I was like diversity admit and I had all this diversity money and I realized pretty quickly like, oh, I'm like the perfect kind of diversity candidate because you get you're the, the numbers. Scary. You're not one quote unquote one of them because me and my friends have had this conversation of when you're not viewed as quote unquote scary because right. of your complexion right. because of maybe how you speak or right. because of who you hang out. So you're you're one of the safe ones. Exactly. And, you know, studying Shakespeare. So I, I had that realization. And then I came to realize like, okay, Shakespeare got a lot of people going about for him. Like, is this, like, do I really want to throw my hat in this ring? Or, you know, where can I make the most difference? Or what, what am I doing here? And then I just by accident, really by accident, kind of fell into my research, my research loves. So I took a seminar, 19th century American, and I was like, all right, I'm going to write a paper for this class. I'm going to write about the Mexican-American War because it happened in the 19th century, and I'm sure it had some impact on literary production. So I'll figure that out. And I you know, started doing research, and I was like, yeah, nobody's talking about this. And at the time, nobody was. There's been a real field change since this was the late 90s. Nobody was talking about it at all. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm going to talk about this. And thus began a very long odyssey of trying to uncover this history and try to construct a literary genealogy. And, you know, I focus on Mexican California and I, I was my dissertation research was uh, focused on this body of texts that were produced in and around California in the 19th century. Uh, and so it was both an intellectual pursuit and a professional, kind of like a strategic professional move, but an intellectual pursuit too. You know, I'm interested in this, but then also all research is me research, me search, all research is me search. I can say my own timeline because, you know, I felt like, wow, this material is here and nobody is looking at it and nobody cares, right? It's being erased in the same way that I felt like my own culture was being systematically erased. Like I was never taught anything about Mexican-American history or Mexican-American literature. I, I went through all of the K through 12 and all of college without having to study any, any of this. Wow. And now I'm trying to think of very, I mean, yeah, I don't think there was very many and I, very many opportunities that we had. And it was always through a friend that I would find something out about an author or a book or something else, but it was never through any formal education. And that we would find out any of these authors or any of these books or anything like that. But that's a problem. There's all kinds of ways in which like systematizing stuff in informal education and curricula also can be problematic. But it's a problem if you don't see yourself represented. My second book is all about you know, like the, the pitfalls of representation and ways to think meaningfully about what text does other than represent. So I have like a bunch of, you know, fancy theoretical stuff to say about representation, but in like the practical terms in one's you know daily life, if you don't see yourself represented anywhere, 
then it's easy to just think, even if you're not fully aware, it's easy to think that you're not valuable, you're not important, you don't matter. And that's, that is a problem. So that's now <laughs> what I'm uh, dedicated to erasing. That's what I'm going to erase, erase erasure. <laughs> it's so important that we realize, actually, my friend and I, who's here, we were at lunch and we were talking about how so many people within our own community don't realize, like, we talk about all of the horrific things that happen to African-Americans and slavery and how horrific those things were. I was even seeing on TikTok, there's so much you can learn on TikTok. I'm telling you, there's there so is. <laughs> a wealth of information. So people that are like, it's no, yes, there's dancing videos and silly, you know, things, but there's also a wealth of information. And I was watching this guy saying how, like, apparently in the South, all of these families have, in at least his area, have said they found all these documents, these documents of slaves. People want to see these documents because that can connect us to our history. Like, because so many people that are descended of slaves, they don't know anything outside of once somebody is on this land, right? Mm -hmm. Like they don't know technically what country they come from. They don't know unless, unless something like that folklore has been passed down and passed down, their history is erased, which is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And I was telling her, and within the, particularly the Mexican community, right, that people don't realize that when this land was stolen, when California was stolen, when, you know, Arizona and these areas were stolen, that there was a lot of wealthy Mexican families that were stripped, literally stripped of their land. And our communities were also hung and lynched and made servants and all of these different things. And people within our community, because there's so much that doesn't share that and know that. And I think so many people within our community have no, not just within our community, but just the population in general have no idea that any of that happened. Mm -hmm. And the shock that I see on people's face, they're like, no, that didn't happen. I'm like, it happened. Look it up. It doesn't take much to look that information up. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about erasure, that's a big part of of it too, is like erasing what actually happened mm -hmm. in California, in Arizona, what happened to these families that literally had money, who had their land, their families, everything stolen from them. Mm -hmm. And then were made to even work the land that they used to own. How do we talk about those things? Because you can never make 100% of people happy. If you're making 100% of people happy, you're trying to just be appeasing to everybody because the truth is not going to make 100% people happy. Mm -hmm. So how do we start talking about these things? What type of sources do we refer? Because I know you have so many sources and you have this app. Like, How do we start referring to these things so we can really get to know the history of what's happened in this country without feeling like it's divisive? I don't know if there's another. I feel like there's something else that I want to say that I'm not really sure how to articulate. But just being able to share this information and being able to connect people with what the history actually is. <laughs> You're really good at asking like the question, right? <laughs> that is the question. Uh, we could record a thousand podcasts. Uh, I mean, 
this will just be the first of many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always happy to come back. Well, first things first, and I will just focus like specifically on Los Angeles uh, just to, to keep it small and, and to have a, a specific example. You know, something that I am always working to make sure my students understand, you know, I teach these classes and I'm like, all right, so we're thinking about how like Mexican-American war after the Mexican-American war, like what, what are the processes by which, you know, what does it actually mean to say this used to be Mexico and it became the United States? And like, there's a lot to unpack there at the kind of slow stripping of wealth, the slow disenfranchisement. Like, what does that look like? How does it happen? We're going to talk about that, but it's also really important to understand that before this land was Mexico, you know, this was Tongva land, right? Before this was anything, this was an indigenous land and indigenous people were here. And then, you know, Spanish settlers came, Mexico gained its independence from Spain, and this was Mexico. Uh, but there was these systems of controlling the land and churning the land. You know, there was a process by which this land became New Spain, by which it became Mexico. That was a process that relied on colonial violence and, and racialized violence. So the Tongva were, you know, rounded up and for, for the most part, um, imprisoned in these missions. So that's an important thing to understand and important it, to understand. With a G, Tongva, or with a V? Tongva. So that's important to understand then that when ang when this land becomes the United States, that what happens to you know, basically the landed gentry, the Mexican landed elite, the rich and powerful Mexicans, what happens to them is not the same uh, as what happened to the Tongva, but you know, the end result is the same. This was Mexico and then it became the United States. That's a hard thing to grapple with. But right? that's like, good to know, because obviously prior to like, you know, in your head, yes, it was Spain. Then Mexico got their independence. But I had never heard of the Tongva before. So it's okay. Yeah, it's really good to know, because I didn't know what. Obviously, you know that there's, um, you know, native people here. I just didn't know who was in this this area in this region. So that's really yeah, so it's the, the Tongva in LA and kind of like greater Los Angeles and up to the South Channel Islands, but near where you are, I was the, and I'm, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. So apologies to anybody listening who knows how this is actually pronounced, but the Kumeyaay uh, were the, the people in Southern California in and around San Diego. So, you know, there were indigenous people here that were, that Mexico did wrong by, and then Mexicans were done wrong by the United States. So that's... Um, a difficult truth to hold and grapple with. You know, so what are the ethics of that? Yes, what happened to Mexican Californians was terrible, but what they did to indigenous Californians was also terrible. So what to make of that? But how to talk about these things, right? There's different ways to talk about it at different times to different audiences, right? So, you know, when I teach, then I, I have, <laughs> this is an unfortunate choice of words considering what I was just talking about, but I have a captive audience, <laughs> You know, so they have to listen to what I say, but they are also, you know, doing the reading and they're, you know, researching these things on their own and discovering truth. So, so how you talk to students is a little different, but part of the motivation behind designing the app and having this, the Instagram feed that goes along with the app is to answer this very question. Like, how do you uncover the history of Mexican Los Angeles? How do you make clear that this used to be Mexico? It's still Mexican. This is always going to be Mexican land in some form or fashion. Like, how do you do that in a way that, you know, makes visible the systematic erasure of that history but how do you do all that in a fun way? Like, how do you make it interesting? That is the question that we're always trying to answer. 
And one of the things that was really important to me when I started this project, I started thinking about this project was that I didn't want it to be the kind of thing where I was just a professor professing, you know, because in academia, we talk about the public humanities and we talk about, well, we don't really talk about decolonizing knowledge. I'm interested in decolonizing knowledge, but we talk about the public humanities, public facing work. And what that means a lot of the times is just like, oh, I'm at UCLA and I'm going to profess to my students and they have to listen to me. And now I'm going to go do the same thing, but in the public, right? I'm going to go give a lecture. I'm going to go, I don't know, curate a museum exhibit. And I really, I didn't want this all to be just an elaborate scenario of me telling people things because that just, that doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> so what I wanted to do, and I think this is kind of getting around to answering your question, was to create something that would allow people to discover things on their own. And right? so like, here's this street, right? Like Sentinella Avenue in Los Angeles. And so we started doing these um, Instagram reels, um, really short minute long videos, giving you the history of space. Like, why is it called Sentinel Avenue? <laughs> let's, let's think about that. And giving people just enough information that they can draw their own conclusions. I don't know, make what they will out of the information. I don't... Because everybody can have the same information and have it come to different conclusions from that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we did a reel about... This is an example. A reel about a place in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, called Fletcher Bowen Square, which was the site of the former site of the uh, Los Angeles's first hotel, the Bella Union Hotel, which was also where the Los Angeles's first Spanish language newspaper was printed out of and where Pio Pico, the last Mexican governor of California, had his offices during the Mexican-American War. But you go to Fletcher Bowen Square now and there's some historical placards there, but they don't mention any of this Mexican history. And so, you know, we did a little reel about like, okay, well, what used to be here? And, and, and also fun fact, like this square, in addition to being the site of these historic placards that totally erase Mexican uh, history, Mexican-American history, Fletcher Bowen was actually the 35th mayor of Los Angeles and was a very vocal and early proponent of uh, internment camps, Japanese incarceration during World War II. So awesome. And now we have this square that is still named after him that, you know, millions of people, millions of people is maybe an exaggeration. Thousands of people pass through every day. You know, this man's name is still circulating and it's, you know, in the air. And so we, we did this reel and it actually generated a lot of a very interesting commentary by um, we got our first, well, maybe not our first, but certainly our first really active and aggressive trolls who kind of came on there and were like, oh, yeah, you made it. Yeah, like, they're your like, trolls. You're like, yes, you get that's something to be celebrated because that means you're hitting a nerve. I guess so. They were yeah. really, though, <laughs> they were special. I mean, they're like, oh, yeah, LA's of all the LA's problems, like the biggest problem is a mayor from 80 years ago who was way cysts. And they're like, we're talking, you know, they were writing in these ways that were just really condescending, like wasist with the W. Like I was talking like a baby and they made a lot of comments about my appearance and they were like, yeah, mm -hmm. this big nose white lady is, is right. Like I was just all this stuff. I was a bit, yes, it, it hit a nerve or they were just bored, um, but kind of got into it back and forth. So yeah, like they had all this information, but they were like, we don't care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, that's the crazy thing is like, 
facts are facts, right? There's no such thing as alternative facts. A fact is a fact. Yeah. You, those facts can be different, but a fact is a fact. That's why it's called a fact. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And that, I guess when I think about what I'm doing, I'm, I'm just presenting facts. Like, Hey, look, who's Fletcher Bowen? Let me tell you what used to be here. Let me tell you, let me also point out like, here are these historical placards commemorating the space. And oh, let me point out that they completely erased the Mexican history of this space. I'm not going to draw conclusions from that. Like That's for you to do. But it's important to know that these things were here and that, you know, pointing them out or finding a way to point them out in, in fun ways. And we're trying is a way of not forcing is the wrong word, but, you know, creating the conditions possible for people to come to the realization like, oh, this history, it's not like an accident, right? It's been systematically erased. We make choices about what to commemorate. We make choices about the stories we tell. Well, history, Uh, right? I was just saying this, history is written by the victors. It is. And, you know, in thinking about, you know, I have two school-aged children. I have a fifth grader now who just went through California history last year. And I have a almost 16 year old who went through California history a long time ago, but you know, it was this, uh, I got to see up close, like how in, in the 21st century, how are we telling these stories? And we're still telling them in kind of problematic ways. I'm not hundred percent sure what the right way is to talk to nine-year-olds about, you know, the Chumash rebellion, for example, or you're like indigenous uprisings. How do you talk about that? And I'm also not hundred percent sure how you talk to kids or to people about the fact that like, this wasn't just like something that magically happened. Like this used to be Mexico. And then we sort of had a little bit of a war and then it was the United States. That's what what I learned growing up. Oh, it was was Mexico. It was the Mexican American war. And then now it's California. Yeah. But (laughs) how do you get from, this is Mexico, right? A, A Mexican town with Mexican rich people who had indigenous slaves. Yes. So that's a problem. And we should acknowledge that, but you know, rich Mexicans in power, how do they become disempowered? How does that happen? It's not an accident. They don't lose all their land because they're stupid. They don't lose all their land. <laughs> you know, they don't become disempowered because they decide, oh, you know what? We just want to have all Anglo-Americans as elected officials and we want them to pass laws that basically criminalize being Mexican. And that seems like a fantastic idea. We want that to happen. Like that happens because people make it happen. And it's important to see all the ways in which people make it happen. And so the history of the land is one way where you can really see that, which is why, where this whole idea came for, like, let's, let's find ways to tell the story of the land, whether that's through the self-guided bike tour that we did, or whether it's through the app that we're developing, or whether it's just through the Instagram, like to get people to think about like, okay, what was here? And like you said, it's facts, like what was here and why isn't it here now? So kind of, I want to shift a little bit just in regards to the relationship that U.S. and Mexico has has had throughout history in regards to repatriatism, in regards to welcome, all Mexicans are welcome. We have jobs for you, blah, blah, blah. Oh, wait, now the war is over. Bye. We don't want you here. You got to leave. Like there's always been this very much back and forth thing in regards to Mexico and the United States. And obviously, California is a big part of that because agriculturally, 92% of agricultural workers in California, and just in general, are Latino. And 
I've learned this in regards to like all of the wine stuff that I've been doing. I learned that there's over 11,000, there's 92% of agricultural workers, which includes wine, which included my grandpa. My grandpa used to work in the fields here in San Diego. I remember that. Be like, can I go pick some oranges? Can I go get some stuff? Like thinking it's as a little kid, I'm like, oh, I want to go pick my own stuff. Right. And there's 11,000 wineries yet less than 0.1% are owned by Latinos of these wineries. Yet 92% of the agricultural workers are Latinos. So there's this huge disparity. And a lot of that has to come with like the relationship that Mexico and the United States has had and how it's kind of, there's like this strangle now that does not allow for the free flow that there used to be in regards to workers being able to come in, leave, and then come in to work and leave Can you talk about like how that started happening in regards to, yes, you're welcome. You're here. Okay. Never mind. We don't want you here anymore. And even people who were born in the U S but were Mexican, they were forced to move to Mexico. Another fantastic question. (laughs) I've been waiting for this because I've been wanting to talk about all of these things for so long, but me, I'm, I'm not a historian. Mm -hmm. I feel like I know a lot of general information, but I've been wanting to talk to somebody who really knows a lot more than me. So this is like, I've been waiting for this forever. (laughs) Well, I can answer that question. And then I can also recommend things that you can read to, to flesh this out even more, but you know, just what you're identifying is, you know, the, the cycles of, I guess, I don't know, boom and bust, right? When there's resources, resources to be extracted and labor is needed, then a racialized underclass is welcomed because the racialized underclass can perform that labor cheaply and enrich the rich, right? The rich are always going to get richer and the poor are always going to get poorer. So think of the history of California in particular and, you know, our very first example of that was the gold rush. So people came from all over, but a lot, a lot, a lot of people came north from Mexico and from other countries in South America and Chile in particular, because it's coastal and Chile had a thriving mining industry already. So you get a lot of Chilean miners. And it was fine until it wasn't fine, right? Until gold started getting a little more difficult to extract. And then you get uh, things like the Foreign Miners Tax Act, which was passed in 1852, which uh, imposed unreasonable, an unreasonable tax burden on non, uh, non-U.S. citizens. And then you get instances of racialized violence um, in and around mining camps all in the 1850s, targeted not just Latinos, targeted the Chinese in, in particular. The Chinese really were the victims of a lot of racialized violence, but, uh, you know, so the gold rush is the first example. And then, you know, uh, is industries flourish and wane labor is welcomed and pushed out right at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, it's brick and railroads. So those are the two big industries pulling labor north from Mexico and then rejecting, (laughs) right. Rejecting those same labors in all kinds of ways that, white power rejects racialized others, right? Or or makes them unwelcome or funnels them into under-resourced areas. 
and underserved communities. So let's see, so there's the gold rush, there's brick, there's rail, and then there's the agricultural economy. And then, as you were noting, the labor shortages that World War II ushered in. And the establishment of the Bracero program, I mentioned before, my grandpa was a Bracero. Uh, so the Bracero program started in 1942 for listeners who aren't super familiar with this history. And it was a, basically a labor agreement between the United States and Mexico. The United States is like, okay, we need workers. So we're going to uh, dial down our immigration restrictions. We're going to make it easier for companies to import agricultural labor and make it easier and cheaper for companies to do this uh, because World War II, right? We need labor. But then this program was extended, 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 and became and was, uh, but became even more an exploitative system and uh, lasted into the 60s, right? So that's the Bracero program. But as all this is happening, then uh, especially in like the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, you get communist organizations uh, coming in and helping to organize labor, labor is being exploited, then you get, well, I say communist because it's the communist service organization in particular, led by Sal Alinsky, who trains Cesar Chavez and other, you know, phenomenal organizers can working collaboratively to help organize for workers' rights. So Chavez wasn't the first, you know, as this communist organization is happening and international workers of the world organization is happening, then you know, anti-communist sentiment, like red scares become a way to inflame tensions and to inflame kind of racial tensions, right? So you get the mass deportations of the 30s. Uh, this happens in the 30s, Operation Roundup. I believe that's called, I would have to fact check myself. Operation Roundup happens in the, in the 30s as a kind of anti-communist effort. So just like get all the Mexicans on a train and send it back to Mexico. And as you've mentioned, like people were sent quote unquote, back to Mexico, who had never been to Mexico. Right? And so they are just purged uh, in the name of, you know, democracy, in the name of, you know, being mm, That sounds kind of familiar. Sure does. <laughs> and then it happens again in the 50s in something, in, in an operation known as this is what it was called at the time. Historians are always like, is it really the about this? Wet, the wet word? Yes, the Operation Wetbag. Yeah. It was another uh, anti communist labor roundup. So, you know, all these cycles of welcoming and then rejecting, welcoming and deporting, welcoming and then criminalizing or, you know, making it impossible or very difficult to exist in the United States, these are all tied to business. And these are all tied to ways in which wealth and power are always going to seek to maintain themselves. Well, it's and happening so many, in many places, even currently in regards to gentrification. And there's been a lot of talk recently. I think this is like, it's, I think this is something that's kind of always been talked about, but it's ha kind of had a resurgence in regards to everything, how Dodger Stadium was built. Yes. And since you, you, you so much in regards to LA, for people who don't know how Dodger Stadium, how they got that land, how that happened, can you kind of share about what happened? Yes, I can. Uh, so, and this is particularly germane to the moments, right? The moment that we're living in right now. Well, yeah. the, the moment that I'm living in right now, because I'm teaching a class on literature of California in the American West. And I have my students researching ranchos, like all of Los Angeles basically used to be somebody's private rancho. So they were doing research projects. They got to pick the area and research. How did it transform from being a rancho to being Inglewood, for example, or, you know, a city. So They've been thinking, stadium now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They've been thinking in, in really academic, scholarly, like archival ways about uncovering this history. But I'm a huge Dodger fan. Like 
and you cut me and I will bleed Dodger blue. Sorry. If you're <laughs> the Padres I'm not a Dodger fan, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> we can still be friends. <laughs> All right. So we'll just leave it at that. But you know, when, when the Dodgers beat the Giants, it was, you know, time of rejoicing for me, but my students know that I'm a big Dodger fan and we talk about the Dodgers, but then I, I had to say like, okay, you know, we're talking about this history and you know, I love the Dodgers. But just because you love something, like that doesn't mean that you have to forgive, forgive it all its sins, right? And, you, and in fact, it, it means that you have to look frankly and, and think honestly about it. Since, so we were just talking about this with my students, how Chavez Ravine, Dodger Stadium is also known as Chavez Ravine and it's called Chavez Ravine, not because it's named after Cesar Chavez or uh, it, it is named after somebody, but a 19th century cattle rancher, but it was a Mexican community, a really tight-knit Mexican community for, for decades that the city took over and justified the takeover using eminent domain. They promised the residents of the area that they were taking it over so that they could build affordable housing, right? Affordable housing that was up to code. You know, there's all sorts of public health arguments against allowing Chavez Ravine to remain the way it was. So we need to build affordable housing and, you know, ameliorate, make the conditions better there. And so they told the residents like, okay, we're taking this land. We're going to build this affordable housing and we're going to give current residents first crack at it. So like, you want in, you want to buy, you want whatever, like you, you can have that. So they offered to buy up land and some residents were like, sure, that sounds great. Like you can have my land. I'll sell it to you. Some residents were like, no, this sounds shady. I'm not buying. And, and you can't force me out. So the city did buy up a lot of the land. They forced out a lot of people, you know, there's, you can just Google like Chavez Ravine, Chavez Ravine evictions, and you'll see there's some pretty classic, horrible images of people being dragged out of their homes by sheriffs. And then the whole neighborhood was bulldozed. Again, they said they're going to build affordable housing and they did not. And the land lingered and lingered and lingered until the city sold it to Walter O'Malley to lure the Dodgers out from Brooklyn to build Dodger Stadium. On this land that used to be a Mexican community that was stolen from this community, was stolen from this community under false pretenses. They said they were going to build affordable housing and they didn't. And they just built Dodger Stadium on top of it, which just is, that's a really complicated, it's complicated for, for me to grapple with. And, you know, the Dodgers have such a huge Latino fan base and everybody knows this story. It's not like people don't know. Everybody knows. It's almost like each generation gets more disconnected and disconnected. So you know it, but you know the history, but it's hard to grapple with when it seems like it's so far away. But it really isn't that far away, like when you think of it. But I think each generation becomes more desensitized to what actually happened because, I, and I think that's just in general, right? Like the farther. Yeah. Away from something you're like, oh yeah, that happened. That's really sad. I can't believe that happened, but I love the Dodgers type of, or, but I love this. I don't love the Dodgers. Let me be clear. <laughs> I do not love the Dodgers. I'm just saying in general for those people who do. <laughs> there's Yeah. There's a lot to get into there about the Dodgers, but yeah. Like how do you, you can't fix that. Right. And, and it's not Mookie Betts' fault. If you don't know who Mookie Betts is, you can Google him, but right. So then what do you do with that? information, right? You just have to hold that information and, and carry it forward into the present to hopefully make the future better. Right? You can say, sure, yes, that happened. But how is that going to impact how we act in the world today, right? How we think about gentrification today. Like, is gentrification necessarily a good thing? 
Or like my students, we were just talking about, we were just reading um, testimonials. So like oral histories from Mexican California, we're reading women's narratives of 19th century Mexican California and thinking about talking about how, okay, these women, they're talking about important historical events that we've been already thinking about, but they see different things, right? But their narratives were lost in the archives, or they the first edited, like published edition of these narratives didn't come out until it's 2009, like really recent, right? And these women are talking like over 200 years ago, like 150 years ago. I can do math. Um, a long time ago, right? But so they're telling us the story, a story that we think we already know, but what they're telling us is really different, right? They're looking at these figures in entirely different ways. And, and so it's significant to read these narratives, right? But then, you know, my students were talking about how like, okay, well, that happened a long time ago, but like these questions about like who gets to tell, who gets to tell the story, they're really relevant today. I was trying to get them to think about like the summer of 2020 and Black Lives Matter. Who's going to get to tell that story? Oh, God, that just made my stomach drop because it's just so, so critical in regards to education right now, what's happening and how people are using CRT or critical race theory to scare parents into thinking this is something that's being taught in schools when it's university level things, but facts are facts, right? And so many people don't want facts, again, don't want facts from all angles to be shared because there's multiple sides of truth to every story, right? Everybody has their own perception of what that is. And perception is truth to that person. Mm -hmm. Only giving one side, that's only one perception. And that's what becomes truth when that's not mm -hmm. the whole story. This is another thing that I ask my students to think about. And then I think about too, like truth is difficult, right? There's not a version of history that's true, right? They, they like to talk a lot about the real story or the true story. Like, well, you know, what do we mean when we talk about that? Like what's true, what we know is true is that this person says this, this person says this, right? And that these competing accounts, they're different because of race, class, gender, right? So those are the things that are true. That's the truth or that's the knowledge that we have to hold on to moving forward into the world. And yeah, critical race theory, like that I don't even understand because when that first started coming out into the news, I mean, critical race theory is a legal theory. I think by now, most uh, yes. like educated people who read things understand like, oh, it's not just ethnic studies, like, like people who are throwing that term around seem to be using it. But it was confusing to me. I was like, wow, really? School districts are teaching? <laughs> like Kimberly Crenshaw? That's so interesting. <laughs> who knew? Uh, but no, that's not what's happening. But yeah, it's, it's so bizarre. And yeah, the whole argument about like, we don't want to teach students things, whether it's critical race theory or not, whatever you call it. We don't want to make students uncomfortable or make them feel bad or do anything that's divisive. And I just think like, okay, this is like a logical flaw because why? Life is why? uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, and also like, okay, sorry, white kids. Do you think your African-American friends are comfortable all the time? Like, why does one person's comfort have to win out like why do why does one group get to be comfortable at the you know suffering and disempowerment and utter dispossession of others yeah. like that. it's also like you said it's about being seen and having your you know having a story that's not just from one perspective told because if we're only telling like there's all these people saying well i don't want my child to think they're a bad person because just because they're white but you're also not sharing like you're also disenfranchising you know, the kids that come from communities of color, because you're not even acknowledging 
what happened in their history. That's right. Um, it's That's like, right. Yeah, like people who say, I don't see race, right? I'm like, oh, that's convenient because if you can't see race, then you can't see racism. Yeah, exactly. So I actually had posted on my Instagram earlier, when you think of California and when you think of Mexico, what do you think of? The answers I kept getting were of bomb food. Oh, best tacos, best this, that, that. And I was telling my friend, I said, you know what? Those answers are kind of telling within themselves. Because that's the first thing people thought of, right? They didn't think of their identity. They didn't think of history. They didn't think of anything else but food. So how can we move forward within our identity, but also without putting one another down? Because I'm also seeing a lot of that. There's this whole, and I've said it in in previous podcasts as well. There's this whole like Gen Z, this whole no sabo kid thing, which really irritates the hell out of me because I'm like, if you're telling somebody that they're not Latino enough because they are Spanish is not great, you don't know that story. And you're just as culpable as anybody else making fun of you for being Latino. You're just as culpable. So how do we continue to, to learn and move forward within our identity and not put each other down? What I do is... I just always position myself as a learner. Like we're all always learning things right? and we're all always going to make mistakes, but we all also have to always be honest about ourselves and honest about our limitations and assume, assume that we don't know everything. But also I, I think the honesty, honesty is, is the most important thing, but you can't have honesty if you're uh, not able to learn things, which it seems like the hard right wants to <laughs> make make true in the United States. But I digress. How do you move forward without making people feel bad about themselves? I guess you need to always be talking in I statements and not be throwing stones, right? Like, so when the voice that we speak with in the Instagram feed, and that will come through in the app is, you know, we use the Royal We... Because it's like a, a few different people who are writing. So we talk in we, and we always sort of position ourselves in, in the center. Like we, 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 and we all think. And we, 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 all the way to the app. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 all the way. That's right. But <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is just anathema to the internet. Like you just can't be throwing stones and like yeah. criticizing people because you just like, who knows, who knows what other people have going on. Like I'm not in the business of tearing down. I'm just in the business of building up. So it sounds a little, I haven't said it yet, but uh, formulating the thought, it feels a little hokey in my mind, but you know, really like you just have to lead with love, like love and wonder and curiosity. Like I am super interested in the history of Los Angeles. And so (laughs) I am super interested about like what used to be at Fletcher Bowen Square. Like, oh my God, it was this amazing hotel that was like crazy stuff happened in this place. And I just think that that is really interesting. And I will point out, like, I think it's interesting that None of that is commemorated. <laughs> yeah. First of all, your most recent book, which was Racial Eminence, Chicano Bodies Beyond Representation, it was the winner for the 2021 NACCS Book Award given by the National Association for Chicano and Chicano Studies. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was a wonderful, wonderful surprise. That actually talks about identity politics and who we are, like you were talking about, like the representation within the creative community and, and everything. Can you talk a little bit about the things that touches in regards to it? Because obviously that's something that's very 
prevalent right now. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of misinformation that's happening on Spanish lang- in Spanish language in regards to what's like COVID and everything. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk within immigration. Immigration, we're always talking about it when it comes to election year, because people use, like to use that as a fear-based state, you know, those they like to rile people up with fear in regards to immigration, but also people want the vote, the Latino vote, because I feel like it's also like we're no longer staying silent, especially as younger generations are getting a voting age and they want to hear their voice heard and everything. So how is your book, how can people relate that? How do you kind of put those things together and talk about a little bit of, of what that book is really about? I know I just asked like 5 million questions in that one question, but pick out the books. Okay. So I will say, and this is an honest answer. That book is really about Chicano punk rock. Cause I, I begin and end with different Chicano punk communities and kind of cultural production. But I end by talking about um, my favorite, favorite band who I'm so excited. I'm going to get to see in a couple of weeks. They're coming to LA. They're a San Antonio based band, Pinata Protest, and they're a Chicano punk band. But, you know, the, the book is about the spirit of punk and like what it means to be punk, right? The kind of embracing embracing of contradiction, the embracing of abjection, the smashing of icons, uh, and the creating space for something entirely new. So creating space for something entirely new and non-prescriptive. As I talk about, uh, in the conclusion of the book, I talk about how the lead singer plays the accordion, which is just such an interesting instrument in, in all kinds of ways and the history of it. Like why, why is the accordion popular in Mexico and in Mexican music? I talk about this and I talk about you know what it means for this punk rocker to play the accordion, right? This sort of prototypical Mexican instrument. And I can do this reading of one of their videos, a lot of their videos and a lot of their shows end with him smashing his accordion, right? So he plays it and he celebrates it and it's a focal point of their music. And yet he's saying, you know, these things are important. It is important that I am Mexican, but it is not important in the way you want it to be important. Like you do not know me. Like this is important, but it is not important. I am not going to confirm all of the things you already think you know about me. So that's what the book is about. The book is about ways of reading. Like, what does it mean? The introduction is called, what are we talking about when we talk about Chicano literature or Chicanx literature? And I talk about, or I present this problem, right? It's, it's important to be visible. It's important to be seen. But then it is also true that to be seen means you have to make yourself legible to power, right? And thinking specifically in literary studies, Literature by people of color is, and this is still the case, it's it's visible and you know, put in anthologies and put on syllabi and you know, thought about in terms of its relation to Anglo-cultural forms. Right. So literature by people of color we like because it reminds us of things we already think we know. And when you think about the literature of people of color that you might have studied in school or that you know gets popularity, gains popularity. It's literature that confirms things that we already think we know. So this is the theoretical question that I grapple with in the book. Like, what are we doing when we're reading this literature? Are we reading this literature just to confirm things that we already know about Latinos or Chicanos? Like, are we saying like, this is Chicano literature? Like, what does it mean to say that? It means like it reflects things that we already believe to be true. But is there another way to think about what Chicano literature is and does. Is literature Chicano just because it reflects things that we already think to be true? Or is literature Chicano because it's doing certain kinds of work in the world? So 
the books, again, it's Problem Children of Chicano Literature. So the each of the chapters has a book at its center, but also can different forms of art. So, you know, I have a chapter on science fiction and you know, installation art. I have a chapter on conceptual photography. So thinking about each chapter is thinking about literature in relation to other art forms and thinking about what does what does art do? Is art's job just to confirm? our truths or is art's job to challenge us and get us to see the world in a different way? And if you believe the latter, then what does it mean to think about Chicano literature? The book is like, historically, it's about the turn of the 80s into the 90s, the 1980s. So it's really a 20th century focus. uh, And thinking about this moment of like hyper- hyper-Hispanic visibility, how the 90s were supposed to be the decade of the Hispanic. And there's a way to think of that in terms of- Oh yeah, I remember it was all about like when, I'm not going to say when Ricky Martin, like when he became a thing in English media, because- Yes. Let's who know who were Menudo fans. Oh my gosh, I love Menudo. Um, right. And I actually, do I talk about this in the book? Like how Selena was like the- uh, the album that she was recording at the time of her death, that was supposed to be her crossover album. I'm like, yeah. what crossover? Like Selena needed to cross over. She was already like this huge star. Like she didn't need us or she didn't need the US market. But yeah, so I think about like how there's, what that means for specifically literary production, right? So there's this group of authors that emerge in that moment that are the authors that are highly anthologized and still very visible. And you know, I think of somebody like Sandra Cisneros, who we could do a whole podcast on, but you know, writers who get taken up and venerated and do can perform. I would call it Mexican kitsch. Other people have other words for it. But then there's a whole group of artists and writers who really are like, I'm not doing that. I'm not playing that game. You know, I'm producing this art, but you know how like Toni Morrison famously said in that interview, like, I'm not writing my books for white people. Yeah. I don't care if you like them or not. Yeah. Oof. So what are, if people want to get to know more, I know you have the app, but there, I know you said there were some books that people, what are like, what I want more than, but just for general public, like what are things, what are a couple of books that you would suggest people read if they want to know more about the history, if they want to know more about the land and how to, and like just basically where they should start? Okay, well, the, the best book for starting, just to get a general orientation, is Rudy Acuna's Occupied America. And that's just a classic textbook. First edition came out in, in the 70s, but it's gone through many, many editions and, and many changes and updates. And it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal resource uh, and a really, you know, it's not super long. I, it is a textbook, but it's a really easy read and it's the gold standard. So I would start there. So Occupied America, that's the history and that he, he goes from like Mesoamerica up through the our contemporary moment, relatively contemporary moment. So you get the broad sweep of Latino history and Chicano history, but he also covers the Central American diaspora. It's great. And then if you're looking for like, if like me, you're a 19th century nerd, the gold standard for the 19th century is a book by a scholar named Leonard Pitt, P-I-T-T, and it's called The Decline of the Californios, Californios. And that, and that is also the gold standard. It's, it's a great it's a great book. I know if there are any historians listening to this, and then maybe they will say like, oh, we can take issue with Pitt. And you can. You can. I just said it in that funny voice, but I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but it's it's still like, it's a great resource. So the uh, Leonard Pitt for the 19th century, for, you know, the broad sweep, Rudy Acuna's Occupied America. 
And then for books, I mean, I, there's just where to start. I mean, my personal favorite, and this is like, I joke sometimes that like my side job is talking to Chicanas, you know, who come to me, they wind up in my classes and then they come to office hours and they want to write their honors thesis and and do something, you know, grow up to be a professora just like me, but they want to write their honors thesis on Sandra Cisneros because she's the only one that they've read, right? They, this is all that they know of Chicana literature. So my side hustle is dissuading students from writing about Sandra Cisneros. Lisa Arce, have them read some Julissa Arce. She writes all Julissa Arce is good. Yeah, I should. But uh, we'll have to revamp my side hustle. I mean, I, I push students towards Miriam Gerba, whose book, and she's written three books. She wrote Dahlia Season, Painting Their Portraits in Winter, and her most recent book is called Mean, and that came out in 2017. And that was just optioned for TV. I don't know what that's going to mean, but it's she's a phenomenal writer. I cannot say enough good things about Miriam Gerba. You should follow her on social media. But that book is fantastic. It's a memoir, part memoir of growing up in the Central Valley, uh, Central Coast, not Central Valley. Um, so like around Santa Maria. Also like a really interesting memoir of sexual assault. And I guess that's all I'm going to say, but it's a fantastic book. But anybody who wants book recommendations, you can always message us at Picturing Mexican America on Instagram or on all the feeds for everywhere. Yes. So I know we, we, we've talked so much. We've hit so many things. How can people follow you on Instagram and then the app name so they can download the app as well as... I know the the Instagram you just said. So if you could just reiterate that one as well. Sure. We're on Instagram at Picturing Mexican America, um, also on Facebook. And the app is in beta. So it's not available for a wide once download. It's, once We're, it's available, we'll update the show notes with that link as well. Okay. Fantastic. And then we're on Twitter as well. And I always forget our Twitter handle is like, Oh, it can't be the same because you have to shorten it so much. Yeah, it's like pick Mexam or picturing Mex Mexam, or you. We can put that in the show notes. Since <laughs> I'm a terrible promoter of my own work and can't even remember my Twitter handle. I just want to thank you. First of all, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted? Oh my gosh, you asked me all the things. No, this is. Could you tell fantastic. I was really excited? I was just like, I want to know everything. <laughs> this was great. It was such a fun conversation and. No, I, I think you covered all the bases. I can't believe how many different things we talked about. <laughs> I know. Well, that just means there, there will have to be another part in the future. And I just want to thank you so, so much, Marisa, for sitting with me and bearing with all of my questions. Because like I said, I was, I've been so excited about this. So mi gente, make sure to follow Picturing Mexican in America and let me know what you think and share and, and let them know what you think. And it's so important that we know where we come from so we can figure out how to move forward. So until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media, at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram, and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember... 
you want to hear more wine and cheese, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more.